the Spot Track Podcast, talking sports contracts, the salary cap, and business of sports. Today's edition of the Spot Track Podcast is presented by The Athletic. For sports fans, there's no better place to get breaking news, real time commentary, and powerful stories than The Athletic. Download the app, personalize it with your favorite teams and leagues, and get an ad free content stream every single day, unrivaled at this point. You can localize it and keep it local to what you have and your sports teams in your current market. You can branch out and say, I'm a 49ers fan and a Cowboys fan. I like to see what Jerry's thinking and what Kyle Shanahan's doing. It's uh, it's the perfect way to stay up as a sports fan, long form, short form, however you like to digest your sports contract. Visit theathletic.com slash spot track for 40% off your first year subscription today. My name is Mike Janay. Happy Thursday morning. Really good guest this morning, Chelsea Janes from the Washington Post. She used to be the Nats beat reporter, then she switched to politics. Now she's back covering all of Major League Baseball for the Washington Post. She did a great piece on the CBA negotiations, well, what they might look like when they start again, and uh, focusing on the middle class of baseball, which I think is very, very important. You've heard me talk about it on this podcast before, so good conversation with her in that regard. Back end of the show, I'm going to break down some of the more notable incentives and bonuses built into some of these NFL contracts that are coming to roost in week 18. Some quarterbacks, some wide receivers, some defensive sack bonuses that could hit, maybe have already hit, and what that means for the salaries, cap hits, things like that going forward for these prospective players. Thrilled to be joined today by the national baseball reporter for the Washington Post, former beat reporter for the Washington Nationals, Chelsea Janes. Chelsea, I want to start there. You uh you cover the Nats for a bunch of years. You leave. Bryce Harper leaves. They win a World <laughs> Series. What happened there? <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting to try to figure out which one of us was the difference maker there. Uh, but I like to think it was Bryce and not me. But it was uh it was pretty funny to get off the beat and then see them make that incredible run. It, I, I got to be there for the World Series, but it definitely was one of those things of like, was this my fault all along somehow? <laughs> That's good. Uh, well, look at one of the reasons I asked you to come on the show. Um, obviously, you've done a great piece on the CBA, which I've been dying to get to as much as possible because the, you know certainly Major League Baseball isn't giving us any reason to talk about it right now. But <laughs> right. You, you do leave the Nats beat. You go and cover the 2020 election. Then you come back to baseball with the Washington Post and you're covering the entire league. So uh, I think that's extremely fascinating now uh, to have you in this position with what you've just gone through and now have this labor situation in front of you because it's about divisiveness, right? I mean, you, you went through maybe what the most divisive election we have. And now this baseball situation uh, couldn't have two sides be more apart, be more uh, angry with each other. And that's just been the status quo for baseball. Uh, just your general thought. You know, I, I know they're not talking. Yeah. I know that there's a lot we can spitball and kind of project with this thing. But this is a really bad situation. And, you know, even if it gets to a resolution, are we going to solve anything with this? You know, it's, it is fascinating because when I came back from politics, everyone kind of joked with me that I was walking right into a, you know, something similar with the labor negotiations. And I think that's true. And one of the things that's really interesting um, and parallel, I think, is just the difference of opinion on what success looks like, you know, whether that is the union saying, you know, we really got to get everyone paid. We really want to sort of shake things up, which seems to be the general consensus that, you know, after years of agreements that the players felt like went the owner's way, the union is going to dig in this time and really try to change things. And I think from MLB's perspective, obviously they don't want to give back too much, but I think there's also a slightly um, stronger understanding of, of what would happen if you you know, locked out into the season or if this kind of continued and you lost games. And so it's just really interesting that I think the player's perspective on what represents success here is is much grander, I think, um, than it has been in past years. And, and that really makes the gap even wider because the little concessions that might have seemed big from Major League Baseball in the past don't right now. They don't seem to be making much of a difference to the players and, and vice versa. Things that, you know, the players are, are saying, you know, we'll think about don't seem to be a big deal to Major League Baseball. And, and whether that changes when you get closer to the season, I don't know. Maybe what we're hearing so far is is posturing. Maybe the way that they're talking about this and, and these gaps is just sort of performative. And when it gets down to it, people will concede. But I you know, I, I do think that the, the difference in how both sides are viewing this is vast. And it reminds me a lot um, 
of politics where sometimes it felt like, you know, you were kind of talking past each other in ways that mm -hmm. that made it really hard to make any kind of progress. Yeah, that seems uh, <laughs> that seems like you're not attacking it as much as you could have right there. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll let you have that one. Uh, you know, we as as sports fans have the benefit of just having gone through the football CBA, which felt rushed, felt, um, for lack of a better term, sort of pushed through. And the reason I say that is, uh, you know, I had maybe a 20 bullet points that I would like to have seen come up. And I think four of them got hit. Truly, it was <laughs> about a quarter. And that's probably about right if we go through the history of how these things work. But, you know, on the heels of that pandemic, which you didn't even know was there, it, it, it was a blessing in disguise. Uh, my point is this. You can't compare Major League Baseball and the NFL. They are complete apples and oranges right now for a lot of reasons. But we do have that in the back of our head. Do you think that the owners will eventually get to that point where they just say, look, we'll give you two. You give us two. Let's get out of here. Or, and I think you alluded to it a little bit, are, are the players really dug in on this one? Is there a real chance that they feel for the first time in maybe four or five decades, they have a real upper hand here with you know, fans behind them with the the economy behind them with a lot going right in their favor that they are just going to dig in and say, look, we, we're okay not playing ball right now because things have to be fixed before anything else happens. You know, I, I genuinely am not sure whether the sort of we're going to take this over the cliff mentality that the players have indicated so far is genuine. I've heard whispers from people on that side saying, you know what, we know that we're not going to get everything back in one CBA that we're going to have to do this over time and chip away over agreement after agreement. And that, I think that that's in some of, you know, the heads of people leading that group, but, but I'm not sure. I, I do think that there is a unique animus against Rob Manfred right now mm -hmm. um, that even escalated further when, when they let, you know, Ken Rosenthal go from MLB network where there's this feeling that like he is the villain. And so the players, have this really unique opportunity where public opinion is is just so behind them and so behind the idea that that Rob Manfred and Major League Baseball are gaming the system, are are you know just doing everything they can to not be transparent. And and as however fair you feel that is, it is a unique opportunity for the players. And I don't know that they're taking it. I don't know that that they are you know making the most of that opportunity. And maybe they will, but. But I don't know how long that that lasts. I don't know that if you get into March, the nuance of, you know, players deserve their rights and to get as much money as they can and all this um, is going to continue to be the prevailing notion in, as opposed to we're going to lose games because these rich guys can't agree with these other rich guys. You know, I think at some point that that opinion turns and especially after the pandemic, after the excitement that seemed to be prevalent when games came back. It just seems like you're playing with fire if you think that you can, you know, lose games this year and, and have everyone, you know, support you, whether that's Rob Manfred, whether that's the players, you know, I, I think it would be a gross overestimation of, of what people have to give emotionally right now to think that they would be okay with that. And, um, you know, I, I'm not sure that that's a risk everyone's willing to take. So it'll be interesting to see how they assess that as we go. But I think at this exact moment, you know, if the players were to sort of build on what they've got going in terms of public opinion, you know, there's probably some gains to be made. I just don't know how far they think they have to go this time around and, and how patient they could be maybe to make some gains this time and say, we'll, we'll kick some of this down the road. Right. Yeah. I, I do think that's what happens. I do think there's like a four or five year term that is agreed to with the stipulation that we're going to, we're going to hammer more out in five years and hopefully by, you know, over the next decade, we have as much fixed as possible. But the article that you wrote, the reason I had you on the show in the first place is focused largely on the middle class, which I think is hysterical because again, that's, that's bringing politics into baseball, which is exactly right. Yeah. And look, you know, you know, I cover a lot of the NFL stuff. The NFL is, has gone through this and is going to go through this much, much more because where the quarterback pay is and where the rest of that league is, is widening so much every single year, there's going to be a breaking point. And baseball's having that right now. Baseball has a very, very strong 1%, which was furthered, you know, in November with more big contracts and a very, very strong, and I can't even say rookie scale, right? We have minimum salaries for young players that come from a variety of places internationally through a draft, just undrafted through the minor system. Um, that pool is widening and strengthening from a baseball perspective, but certainly not from an economical perspective. 
that middle class is tough and it's rough and it's the majority of these players still. So I want to attack your piece a little bit and basically say, you know, what do we do? How, knowing what we know with all these sports, you know, and basketball had to fix this at some point too. And, and, you know, LeBron James and Chris Paul were integral in that happening. But, you know, you say things like trickle down or bottom up and, mm-hmm. and people get freaked out because that just hasn't translated from a political standpoint. So how is that going to work with Major League Baseball, Chelsea? I don't know if it does. Um, You know, I I think that what we continue to hear from the players union is if you let teams spend freely, if you continue to avoid a salary cap, if you raise the CBT, if you give teams room to spend at the top, it'll go to the, the guys at the bottom. Eventually that will happen. And I don't think we have any evidence to believe that that is true. And I think that is one of the things that is confusing, at least to me, um, when I look at what I've heard of proposals so far, I mean, I don't think we ever in the media get the full picture of what MLB is proposing, what the union is proposing. But but early on, you know, it, it seems like what the union is saying is we want everybody to make more. We are not going to do anything that would hurt the ability of any single player to make more money. And I think what MLB has proposed, and understandably people are frustrated when they see things like, replacing arbitration with a formula or whatever it is. But I think that, you know, some of the things like a salary floor or whatever it is, you look at and you say, okay, you know, if if every team has to spend a hundred thousand, geez, hundred million dollars, you're going to spend a little more on some of these random veterans, middle-class guys, and and that could fix that. But the problem then is that, you know, from MLB's perspective and from what I've heard, you know, anytime that they say, let's put in a salary floor, they say, let's raise lower the top. And from the player's perspective, that's getting too close to a salary cap. And so it just seems like there's no middle ground right now to sort of change the mechanisms by which some of these middle class guys and these younger players are paid that also sort of allows that freedom at the top. And one side's going to have to give in on that somehow, whether it's the player saying, okay, you know, maybe we'll give you this if we can create that pre arbitration you know, bonus pool. So guys who hit these milestones can get a little more money, you know, as young players or whatever it is, you know, MLB having to say, okay, you know, we'll, we'll put this in, but we, we won't lower the CBT or we'll raise it a little bit. Like there's just, it seems like they're trying to fix everything and in the process fixing nothing, because, you know, if you're protecting everyone at the top, that sort of precludes you from making sure that the money's going a certain way at the bottom. So it's, it's really fascinating. And I think, you know, you mentioned politics. It's, it's very similar, right? Yeah. Like we've seen the top guys just make money after money after money and the salary is not increased for people at the lower end. And, you know, I think that the emphasis on paying younger players could help. It, it could help those middle-class veterans get paid because all of a sudden it's not cheaper to, you know, hire you know, to bring up, you know, Joe Schmo from AAA, um, you know, if, if that guy's getting compensated more fairly, but it's it none of it is a straight line and i think that's the problem is that everything sort of has all these moving parts as you know and i am not convinced that anything i've heard fixes that in any convincing way and i'm not convinced that you can do it without the top guys i don't know what giving something up looks like but but sort of admitting that like we have to really focus on the guys at the bottom and look out a little bit less for the guys at the top if this is going to actually make meaningful change so I'm going to push back just a little bit. Um, yes, please. And not so much against what you're saying, but I think what what generally I'm not hearing enough of. You're you're saying it, but I think it needs to be the overriding theme for for everything I've read. You know, across all the networks, across all the media platforms, we can change a lot. We can raise the CBT. We can mm-hmm. put in a floor. I, I actually agree with both of those things. We can raise the minimum wage. We can we can do a lot of things that easily look like. You're making lives better for certain people. But to me, the the one issue, and I'm not sure anything we've, we've said or anything that's being said is attacking it enough, is that there's still no incentive to, to spend in free agency. There, that, is, to me, has been the biggest issue, is that even when Bryce Harper got there and it took forever and you knew what, what, what was happening, there was nickel and diming, there was, there was CBT you know, tax salary situations, and that's what we have with a lot of these players. That's why they're waiting till February to sign these contracts. There's just not an, an effort or an earnest need for teams to spend in free agency. And, and let me give you, I'm going to go back to Harper. 
a lot of people gave Bryce Harper a lot of credit for signing for 13 years. And, you know, he was lowering his luxury tax salary. He was showing that he had, he wanted stability with the roster. And I just think he, he went through that process and, and Boris has done it a lot of times and said, this is the last time I ever want to do this in my entire life. This mm-hmm. is the worst. And mm-hmm. I think most players have that opinion. Once they get there, they wait forever to get there. They go through heaven and hell to get there and then they get there and it's awful. It's not an enjoyable experience where you're finally valued for what you've done or what you could do over the next five years. It is complete suppression. And to me, that is the biggest problem. Free agency as a whole is the biggest problem with Major League Baseball right now. And do you know how the NBA figured it, fixed, the, fixed their free agent issue? They just stopped sending people to free agency. <laughs> they just right. We're just going to extend everybody and just trade and trade and trade. And we're going to win the transaction wire race that way. And it's worked a lot. It's, it's been a big deal to that league. And I wonder if that's just where baseball has to go. I'm just going to sign the extension and just get flipped around the league as much as possible. And that's going to be a different game. But I, I don't know that anything we can say here today is going to fix, is going to stop the Baltimore Orioles from never spending free agency. I just don't know that we can get there. Yeah, it's, it's definitely tough. And I think that the, the big difference, at least from my perspective, and I'm not an expert by any means on, you know, the NBA I have sort of a cursory understanding of all that's transpired there, but I think that the strength of MLB's union and in particular the gains that players have made in terms of free agency, in terms of what they see as the free market, you know, their ability to take advantage of that are so sacred that like any step back is going to feel massive. It's just off the table, right? Like, like they won't even look at a, a CBT that is under 200 million and probably rightfully so, frankly, given what the owners are making. But, but the fact is that like, there is no going back in my opinion from anything that's currently in place that allows players to take advantage of the free market as much as possible. So whether that is arbitration, they're not going to concede on arbitration because that's the first time a young player gets to sort of presumably in a world of suppression that still exists around it, you know, take advantage of, you know, their value and try to argue for their value. And so it's just hard to picture that that NBA kind of situation translating because I just can't see some of these guys um, conceding an inch. I think free agency still holds a huge sort of specter of, you know, opportunity for these guys. And I think that's why you hear Tony Clark talk so much about competitive integrity, right? About incentivizing five more wins for a team like the Baltimore Orioles with a rejiggered draft that that makes you say, okay, maybe like that five win guy is worth it. And we've seen it. I mean, teams that spend, they, they win, you know, it's, I mean, like the Dodgers have great fan support, you know, there's, there's a reason for it. And which comes first, I don't know, but like, it's not like there's this history of like, if you spend on guys, you know, you're irrelevant. Like there are incentives to try to win, I think. And, and I think that you just have to build in as many of those as you can for teams and as many penalties as you can for being non-competitive year on year, because the players are not where that adjustment is going to take place. It's going to have to be team behavior. And I think that the players for sure feel that they just have to create as many mechanisms to modify that as, as they can. The, the floor to me has to happen. And I, I know you kind of dodged that in your piece a little bit. You were, you were focused more on, on getting to that middle class and how to raise that, those paydays. But do you agree with that? that, that some sort of spending minimum should be there? Or do you think that that's going the wrong way with the game? I, I think it's great. Yeah. yeah, I think it it would be the easiest answer to every question that we have um, for so many reasons, right? Like, not just because the Orioles are going to try to maybe go get a big star, but because maybe they'll try to spend some of that money on four moderate guys that are getting squeezed out now. You know, it's like it makes so much sense. And the problem is that when MLB proposes this and in order to get the owners to do it, my understanding is it's always come with a lower CBT. It's always come with, you know, 180 something in that range CBT proposal so that the competitive balance tax payments can kind of help offset the costs for these teams that are suddenly going to be spending more than they've ever spent. And like, we don't have the documents on how much most of these teams make other than the Braves. But like the idea that a lot of these owners need help getting to that payroll threshold is... I think laughable, no. but, but that's how the owners view it. And they're not going to give in and the players aren't going to give in on a lower CBT. So like these, that's sort of what I was saying is like these answers, they're there, 
but I don't know that everyone views them as answers in the way that we do, where, you know, we're not the ones that might see money come off the books because of a lower CBT or whatever it is. And like, it, it just feels like they're talking past each other because, you know, it, it the priorities are so different and, and they say they're the same, you know, like on paper, the way they outline them is the same, but I think, you know, that they are different and it's, it's the, the gap is wide. So let me push back on that because, and I think, yeah. I think you're going to agree with me on this too. I'm pushing back on, on, on most of what everyone else is saying. I, I do want a floor because I do want those lower teams just to have to, just to have to bring in a couple of veterans, which they're not doing right, right now. They're simply going right. bottom base minimum salaries. And maybe they have one or two contracts that they're carrying through from five years ago, but let's, let's fix that. To me, that's easy. Let's expand the postseason for the same reason, mm-hmm. for the exact same reason, so that um, Cincinnati in August is right on the fringe versus, nope, we're going backwards, not forwards. Let's start to build that way financially. Um, and then three, I actually want to increase the CBT a, a lot, right. maybe even like 20 million. So if it's 210 now, let's go to 230. And, and here's my thinking on this. And again, I'm going to go cross sport on you. I actually think we have to get away from the NFL model and away from the NBA model a little bit because Major League Baseball is just way behind in that regard. They're not there. They're, they are third in line pretty, pretty easily at this point. I think we have to think more like English Premier League soccer, unfortunately, <laughs> which is it's bad for everybody if the Manchesters are losing. It's bad for everybody mm-hmm. if Liverpool is losing because those teams are allowed to spend. They're going to spend. They are sponsored properly to spend that way. And the game is better when they do so. And I do think that's what we've seen. You mentioned the Dodgers. The Yankees are in this conversation. Boston's in this conversation. You know, there's there's big hitters. When they spend, when they're relevant, the game is better. And I think we should reward that and let them go yeah. and spend more, in fact. Um, and, you know, you've mentioned that there's not a salary cap. I have to, if you pull up 200 baseball players, they would say there's a salary cap right now. There were seven teams that were within five million of that tax threshold last year, right up against it. Yep. They're, they're treating it as if it's a hard number that they refuse to go over, even though the fines are, you know, pennies in the in the couch for them. Um, so I think we're already at that cap threshold. So blow it out of the water. Give them something way down the road that they're not going to approach. But if the Dodgers want to do it, let's let them do it. Yes. No, I completely agree, and I think that like makes of sense to if to an, a disinterested actor right like i'm interested in in the success of baseball as a whole and i see that and i think yes salary floor up the cbt you know if if you really think you need revenue sharing figure it out but like all of that makes sense because you it's not going to work that you just you know eliminate that soft cap and the spending will trickle down. It's just not how we've seen it. It doesn't work. Like, but the problem is, is how they view it, right? Like to the players, like you say, that is basically a soft cap and they want it to rise or they want it gone to the owners. Like the players have the best deal in sports because they do not have a salary cap, at least not in name. And so the idea of conceding even further on that is like unthinkable. And so like, you, you know, like it, it's just, they can argue themselves into this really narrow view, I think, of what help of what helps them. And I, I worry that like the grand scope of things is getting lost in that because I think ultimately, if you really overhauled, like if you said there is a salary floor and we're gonna raise the CBT and whatever it is, like I, I think that fixes things in a maybe five to ten year span, like things kind of even back out. But I don't know how it affects the owners. Like, I don't have the money. So I don't know how big a hit that really is. I don't know how egregious it is that they don't see that as the solution. And it's just kind of hard to gauge. But I know that it's just both sides are so dug in that these things that make so much sense just, like, are not even on the table. And and I think that that is why baseball is so sort of stuck, is that everything that makes sense doesn't make sense to one side or the other. And the middle ground just keeps you where you are. Well, let me throw this back at you then, because I mentioned the expanded postseason. I know some are mm-hmm. vehemently against that for a lot of reasons, the competitive one being the biggest one, but that's revenue. And and yep. we just had the biggest postseason 
pool from a salary standpoint in the history of Major League Baseball. The Braves just yep. got the biggest number that's ever been given out, and that's trickled down to the other teams as well. So something went very right with Major League Baseball playoffs last year, and it wasn't exactly the best teams, you know, in terms of uh, of eyeball viewership. So something's going right with that season, and it's competing against football and college football and a lot of things. So I think they need to capitalize on that right now, add two or four more teams, and take that revenue and make that part of this conversation. I do think it's sitting right there for them to have. Um, you mentioned yeah. the draft. Let's finish on the draft, Chelsea, because, I, you know, and I don't blame you or anybody else writing these articles right now. A lot of times it's just a bullet point. We need to fix the draft. Well, mm-hmm. that's, that's like a, you know, that's a novel because right, a, right. you're mentioning how, you know, the worst team gets the first pick. That's antiquated. There's a lot of reasons not to do that anymore. But I want to I want to go this direction, and again, it's a huge question, so I apologize. Isn't it? Don't we just have? Isn't baseball too big? It, isn't aren't there just too many players everywhere? Whether that's three or four minor league systems, whether it's the current rosters in Major League Baseball, it just seems like there's so many people to choose from that there's nothing exclusive anymore. And to be exclusive, you have to be Max Scherzer. You have to be somebody who's a god. <laughs> you know what I mean? To stand out among these you know, 20,000 players across all of these leagues and, and minor league systems. And and then we have a 40 round draft or, a, you know, if they're going to lower that down to 30, whatever it's going to be, that's still too many players in my opinion. Uh, is that not a part of this conversation that we just need to have less intake so that we can maybe have a little bit more exclusivity and, and start to lo- make these careers longer again? Or is that just, is that an adequate thought from, in your opinion? You know, I, I guess I had never thought of it in those terms outside of the discussion about, you know, minor league baseball. Like, I think that the contraction of minor league baseball last year, obviously there are a lot of opinions about it, but one thing that it did is it like squeezed out the guys who weren't going to go anywhere, who were kind of on the fringe and you just sort of politely let play out their time. And I think that, you know, both in terms of resources used and well, maybe just resources used, like that helps, like that does sort of funnel you know, these channels into more efficient, you know, player development channels, and it it just kind of saves energy and resources. But, you know, when it comes to the draft, yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of people involved. And I don't know, like the direct line to fixing that, like, I don't know that if you cut down the draft a ton, you sort of, you you increase exclude, or yes, exclusivity, Mm -hmm. because I'm trying to kind of think on the fly, but it just feels like ultimately you're still going to get like the, the quad A players and these sort of decent major leaguers who who come up and and don't have sort of anything to distinguish them over the next guy and, and help them increase value. But I think that if it is harder to pay a young guy less who is doing the same as an older guy, then you have there you go maybe reduced exclusivity, but you've helped the veteran. And I don't know if that's draft heavy, if if that's something you fix with the draft, making it smaller, maybe that's part of it. But I think it's partially just like paying for production. And yeah, it just, it just feels like every little piece of it, like you said, like the draft is a huge thing to change. And I, you know, but it feels like you can't fix any of the rest without sort of changing the incentives there. But can you change the incentives there without doing something else here? Like everything is moving and, and, and everything is a, you know, war and peace novel on its own. So it's like, (laughs) it's all just so intertwined and confusing that the the side effects are, are hard to predict, but you know, they're stuck. Everyone's just sort of stuck in this place in between. Okay. Last question. I promise. No. (laughs) Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a big baseball guy and I'm, glass half empty right now on this stuff, Mm -hmm. you you know, and I think rightfully so. And I'm, you know, this is generally the time where I'm counting down pitchers and catchers and all that fun stuff. It's not even in in my head right now. We're going to miss games. I I have a feeling that's that's a given at this point. Here's the last question for you. Can gambling fix this? That is a really good question. And, you know, it's funny that I like get uncomfortable hearing it, but I'm like, ooh, like, probably but is that good or bad like taking out any of like the gambling moralizing that goes on it is going to make a huge difference in revenue and you know it's bringing in tons of money already and and i think yeah like in theory that revenue can fix it but again it's like where is the revenue going you know i mean revenue hasn't necessarily been the problem right like that has not been the issue for ownership and players it's it's the division of that revenue so does it 
Well, so maybe. let me refine the question for you then, Chelsea. Yes. Is is not playing games, is missing games and missing out on that revenue that all these other leagues are now cashing in on. It's there. I mean, <laughs> the NFL is going to have numbers from gambling that are going to be absurd. Uh, I, I, mean, I mean, March Madness had absurd gambling numbers yep. last year. Is that going to be an incentive for the owners to say, look, we got to get this done? Because if, you know, whatever we lost the last two years, I, I mean, the Washington National Stadium has kiosks, do they yeah. not? They, are, right. they have, they have, yep. they are ready for fans to come in and bet on, you know, Patrick Corbin under four right. runs, under four runs earned. Right. So <laughs> it's there, it's right there, and it's on many phones in many states. So I just have a feeling that this, this is going to be the thing that Bruce Meyer and those players can say, look, we're okay sitting out. You know what I mean? We, we made some money. We're good. You know, especially the Scherzers of the world who are kind of leading this charge. I have a feeling that's going to become the point of contention. Like, look at what these leagues are doing. Look what happens, you know, to the college football playoff and the, the numbers that are going to be thrown out there on Twitter soon with just gambling itself. And baseball's not going to have that. They're not going to capitalize on that. I have a feeling that is going to be the, the buzzword in the next month or so that really could drive at least some conversation from the owners. Yeah, I think for sure that revenue in general and particularly the promise of that kind of gambling revenue um, is going to be a huge part of, of whether the owners concede, especially after COVID. Like if they lost as much as they want everyone to think they lost, like there is no, they, they can't miss games. And so I, I do think that the players are right that they're in a position of strength because like you say, I mean, that gambling money is is there for the taking you know, they can look at whatever the owners are saying on revenue and say, okay, but like, look at what this is going to do. You know, I think all of that it, it plays in the player's favor. And, you know, it, I guess the question just becomes like, how much are the owners willing to lose and how much are they willing to give, you know, where are they willing to lose it? Are they willing to lose money by putting a bunch of it back into the system and, and not missing games and, and, you know, appeasing some of these demands or are they, or are they willing to lose it, you know, with game day revenues that, that are probably going to be higher than ever in some places where, you know, the gambling is, is more prevalent. Like it's hard to say, but I, I do think in a sport that traditionally has come down to money and that where the owner's incentive is money, like that will be a calculation. And I, I am hopeful that that calculation goes in favor of not missing games because there's too much money to be made and there's already been too much money lost over the last few years. It was a really great piece. I really appreciate your time with this. You can find her at the Washington post. She's at Chelsea underscore Janes on Twitter. Great baseball follow at any time of year, but certainly through this litigation process right now. Chelsea, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. All right, switching gears to the NFL. A little different NFL take this uh, time of year. It's week 18. We've never had a week 18, but really it's just like a week 17, just one week later. <laughs> and that's the point I want to make at the top here. I'm going to talk a little bit about NFL incentives and bonuses. The... The big question that I've been asked the most is, does the 18th week change things? So if a player had to get a thousand receiving yards last year in, in the incentive, does that pro rate higher with the extra week added? The, the answer is no. If it was a thousand yards, it's still a thousand yards and they get the extra week to try to get that. So while, you know, when we're talking about the record books and Cooper Cup and things like that, you know, needing an asterisk because they got that extra game to get the get the work done and get the record. That's a separate conversation from contractual bonuses. If some of these numbers you hear were built in three years ago when the contract was signed, they haven't been amended because the league said we need an extra game. You simply have a better chance of getting them. That's that's how this works now. So just a few to run through here. Obviously, we'll start with the quarterbacks, and I have to start with Aaron Rodgers. Because I'm not sure this part of his deal is being talked about enough. And I was able to confirm this yesterday with a source. Uh, he's got plenty of bonuses. He's had these for the majority of his contracts. And with the re recent restructure, some money was moved around and pushed into incentives. So the big one in here is, you know, his top three stuff. So if he's top three in passer rating, in completion percentage, interception percentage, yards per attempt and touchdown passes, he gets hundred grand for each of those if he's top three. He's currently first in passer rating. He's currently first in interception percentage. He's currently third in touchdown passes, fourth in completion percentage, fifth in yards per attempt. 
there's an outside chance with a massive week 18 that he gets all five. Um, not likely, but it's possible. I think there's a very good chance that if he plays, there was a couple of touchdown passes. He locks in three of those. So $300,000 under his belt in the grand scheme of things. Doesn't matter much, right? $40 million player. Still it's 300 grand. Okay. And oh, by the way, that's only half of his incentives. So let's talk about the other half. This is where it gets interesting. He's got playoff bonuses. He gets $125,000 per playoff game or the buy, which he'll have. So he gets 125,000 for green Bay missing the wild card round. However, those bonuses only kick in. They only become activated if the Green Bay Packers improve on their return or recovery touchdowns from last year. Let me say that again. (laughs) Defensive or special teams touchdowns, which were three last year. There's three this year. They They need a score. In week 18, the Packers defense or special teams has to score a touchdown in week 18 in order for Aaron Rodgers to get his playoff bonuses. I've seen some pretty cool conditions like this. I don't think I've ever seen one this out there. I mean, that's out there. Talk about a team effort. <laughs> you know, generally speaking, like Tom Brady, I'm going to talk about him next. You know, his is, his is attached to some offensive team stats. And, you know, there's no chance that that's not going to happen for him. This one, it's almost making that that game more interesting to watch because he could not play at all, Aaron Rodgers. And, you know, a defensive end intercepts a pass for a touchdown and that immediately gets him $125,000 for that first round of the playoffs. So it's, it's, it's fascinating. So I do think he'll get upwards of what should we say $800,000 in bonuses this year? Should we say two playoff rounds and three passing per- performance bonuses? So that's probably about right. And then we'll see from there. If he's MVP slash Super Bowl slash $50 million per year next year, because that's all on the table as well. Tom Brady. He does well with these almost every single year. Last year, I think he made a little over 2 million on these. They had to restructure that contract for two reasons. A, for cap purposes, but also because him hitting those bonuses last year meant they were going to be likely to be earned this year, which again, would affect the salary cap. So what they did is they triggered, okay, all the bonuses remain the same from the previous contract, except the Tampa Bay Buccaneers must be better than the 26th rushing per attempt team in football. Well, they are. Big year out of Fournette. Decent year out of Vaughn, the, the rookie. There's a, that's a pretty achievable thing. Wasn't likely because they were 26 last year. So that made it not likely, which kept them off the cap this year. But he's about to earn some, some, some good coin here, okay? So Brady has similar thresholds to Rodgers in that there are five performance categories. If he's top, I believe it's five for Brady. If he's top five in any of these categories, he gets $562,500 for each, a maximum of $2.25 million. Passer rating, touchdown passes, passing yards, completion percentage, yards per attempt. Here's how it currently lays out. He's first in touchdown passes. He's first in passing yards. He's eighth in passer rating, 13th in completion percentage, 13th in yards per attempt. So... He's pretty much, he's locked into two, really no chance for those other three. So you're talking, you know, 1.1 million right there for uh, yards and touchdowns. Then we get to the non-cumulative playoff bonuses. Again, with the condition of the rushing per attempt situation that the Bucks have cleared for him, he's already got the 500,000 for the playoff berth. So we're up to what? 1.67 million. A wild card win gets him 750. Then it gets into 125, 175, and then the full 2.25 million for the Super Bowl win, which is where he was last year. It's doable. (laughs) 
it's certainly doable that he gets 1.1 million from performance bonuses and 2.25 million for that Super Bowl, which means 3.5 million of incentives tacked on to 26 million this year, which puts him over 30 million. He's already at 29 and change, which means the most cash he's ever earned in a single season in his entire career, 21 years. So anything after this is gravy. And he certainly has that kind of uh, situation in front of him with Antonio Brown or not. Speaking of which, Rob Gronkowski is next on this list. Nobody's going to benefit probably more from this AB situation than Gronk because Gronk has a couple of, uh, of metrics to get to himself, which I'm not sure it's, it's doable if he's the fourth option on that team, which he would have been with Godwin, with AB, with a couple other, you know, Fournette out of the backfield, catching balls now, finally. There's going to be limited options for Tom Brady. And generally, when that's happened over the past, Gronk has been the go-to guy. Gronk needs seven catches, 85 yards, and three touchdowns. I'd say the seven catches is very doable. 85 is possible, three touchdowns. That seems a bit much unless he just hammers him on the goal line. Each of those gets him $500,000. So there's a potential $1.5 million sitting on the table for Gronk Sunday. And like I said, no AB, no Godwin. Certainly helps that chances. Um, Gronk's playoff incentives are moot at this point. He cannot, he cannot gain from those because he did not play 65% of the regular season snaps due to injury. So going forward, everything else is off the table for him. But there's, you know, an outside chance of 1.5 million for Rob Gronkowski Sunday afternoon. All right, a couple more offensive players. AJ Green, Arizona wide receiver. Speaking of, uh, you know, taking a step forward because of missed time. DeAndre Hopkins has been out. AJ Green's got some balls. He needs 75 yards for a $250,000 bonus. He needs 10 catches for a $250,000 bonus. It's possible. Um, I'm not sure he's had 10 catches in a while, but it's possible. I think the 85 or the 75 yards is very much in reach. And, uh, that would mean 900 yards for the season, which is, I think much more than Arizona could have asked for with the Hopkins situation with a couple of the rookies bringing in Zach Ertz, Kyler Murray being kind of a dual threat option. This is a big year for AJ green on a one-year tender. I, I think they'll look to extend him quite frankly. I think that's in the cards and we'll have a wide receiver piece out soon to kind of go with that. But it's on the table for him. Stefan Diggs and the Bills. Again, this one's going to be moot in my opinion, but he's currently at 94 catches. He needs six more to get to 100, which gets him a an escalator for next year and for 2023. So $750,000 added to next year, 800,000 added to 2023. It, this is an and or this is an or situation. So either he gets six catches or 231 receiving yards Sunday against the Jets. I mean, it's possible if he wants to go and uh, show up Jamar Chase. Certainly the six catches is doable. That's all he needs to do to get those escalators. Why do I say it's moot? I think he's getting a big contract this offseason. So, you know, tacking on some base salary, non-guaranteed base salary is fine. But I think it's going to be all ripped up, torn up, and uh, turned into a $23 million per year contract sooner rather than later. And, uh, you know, these kind of things will be moot. But it's it's possible. Rex Burkhead, speaking of names you probably haven't heard in a while. He's with Houston, by the way. Uh, he's had a pretty good run over the past month or so with David Johnson Hurt. And, you know, they moved on from Philip Lindsay, some things like that. He needs 103 yards from scrimmage to get $125,000 bonus. That's very doable. I mean, he's been a kind of a go-to workhorse here for the last month. He also needs 30% of total regular season snaps to get $125,000. He's there. Um, he's over that threshold right now. As long as he plays most of that game Sunday, he's going to get it. So extra two fifty dollars for him, certainly within reach. And then the last one is Taylor Heineke, of course. Um, reportedly will get the start Sunday against the Giants. Every time he starts, plays 60% of the game and wins, it's $125,000 this year. He's done that six times so far for $750,000. He's got a chance to finish it off with one more against the Giants, a very winnable game for Washington. 
And, you know, he needs to put a stamp on this season personally to, to be in the conversation for either this job or at least the backup job in Washington or somewhere. You know, he's been an up and down year, the injury, the COVID stuff. He needs to end on a, on a good note just from a personal standpoint to sort of get to where he needs to be for the offseason. But, uh, okay, that's offensive incentives. Let's flip quickly to some sack incentives. And look, these are these are hard to come by. It's not like, you know, I, I'm sitting in front of a PDF of every single contract in the league and I can kind of rip these out and organize as, as I can. But defensively speaking, a couple of guys have already made the bank. A couple of guys have a really good chance for it. So Marcus Golden, Arizona Cardinals, he has earned a million dollars already for 10 plus sacks. If he gets two more this Sunday, it's another mill. That's a big one. I mean, that's a big time enchilada sitting out there for him in, in, a, in a good game, by the way, for Arizona to finish the season. Genevieve Clowney has already bagged a half a million for seven sacks. Two more on Sundays, 250000 more. So, you know, tough season for Cleveland. Could finish on a high note. Preston Smith, the Packers. I'm not sure how much these guys are going to be playing, but look, he's already earned a million, a 1.25 for nine sacks this season. Hell of a year for him. One more gets him seven or fifty thousand dollars. You got to think, with that kind of incentive built into your contract, your agent and player are going to the coaching staff and saying, "You got to give me a half. You got to give me a half to try it out. Try to see if I can get this." I mean, that's it's a big chunk of change right there. Speaking of which, Chris Jones with the Chiefs. I imagine he'll be playing. They're vying for a, the number one seed. Needs one sack for $1.25 million. That's good business if you can get it. Hassan Reddick, Carolina Panthers, not much to play for. In fact, they probably want to play for down, not up. Two sacks gets them a million dollars. Similar situation in Atlanta with Dante Fowler Jr. One sack for one million, three sacks for two million. I'd be pushing to play. Sheldon Richardson, Minnesota, I don't know. Two sacks for 250. And Cam Jordan, one and a half sacks for 250. These all seem extremely attainable. And, uh, you know, it's all about playing time, in my opinion, with some of these teams. But I have to think uh, with this kind of change on the line, like I said, especially in like a Preston Smith situation, I'm going to get that bank. I'm, I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to push through and, and risk the injury because it's not like it's, a, you know, pocket change. We're talking upwards over or close to a million dollars in most of these cases. So, and by the way, there's plenty of players here that I didn't mention, you know, Dak Prescott, if they win the Super Bowl and he plays 50% of the snaps, $1 million, big ones, obviously, uh, you know, Mahomes starting next year, I believe. Yes. 2022, you know, that's when his win the AFC championship game, 1.25 million every year of his contract starting next year through 2031, if the Chiefs win the AFC Championship game or whatever team he's on wins the AFC Championship game, $1.25 million in his pocket. If he's the NFL MVP, $1.25 million. So tons of incentive for him to get back on the MVP candidate race next year. And by the way, you know that's $2.5 million per year starting next year through 2031 that is built into that $450 million. So there's a lot of not likely to be earned here. Okay. <laughs> there's a lot. Uh, you know, we called it a $500 million contract out of the gate. There's a lot that has to happen for it to get there. And uh, we'll certainly see about that. As of right now, his cash flow over this 12 year run is 477 million. So we're not crying for Patrick Mahomes. I'm just saying there's a, there is this stipulation that he's got to, he's got to be great. And the Chiefs have to remain great in order for that full 500 to be a, a reality. Josh Allen's incentives kick in in 2023 with the Bills. So similar to Mahomes, there's a two-year grace period, which is smart business. A little less cash, a little less cap for the Bills that have to handle over the next two seasons uh, when they're in the real window contention here. And then after that, it starts to become more about Josh. There's some performance stuff like Brady and Rodgers and certainly some playoff stuff overall with what the Bills can do on a on a postseason run basis. And we'll get to those when they become relevant. All right. That's a quick synopsis of some of the more notable incentives for week 18 and for the playoffs. We'll come back next week. And here's what's going to happen. I've got a lot of off-season stuff brewing here. Divisional off-season pieces. 
positional offseason pieces. Uh, I've done running backs. I'm finishing wide receivers. Certainly we'll do quarterbacks and tight ends soon. And I'm going to start having on specific people from different markets. So I've got a Browns conversation lined up. I've got a Vikings situation lined up. The, the markets that are sort of right out of postseason contention, already in offseason mode, have some polarizing, notable questions to answer. We'll have some specific deep dives into those teams as we head into the offseason, which, by the way, is going to be quicker than ever. Super Bowl is February 13th. Franchise tags are like a minute later. You know, tenders come up and then bang, I think it's March 16th. We're back. We're back and rolling. Barely a month, barely over a month between Super Bowl and league year start. So, you know, whatever offseason conversations you want to have, let's start having them now. You know, regardless of whether you're a contender or not, because it's going to be a quick, quick turnaround to get to 2022. Okay. My thanks to The Athletic. Visit theathletic.com slash track for 40% off your first year subscription and visit spottrack.com. Plenty of uh, new pieces from Keith Smith and myself up there to kind of keep your, uh, your reading as accurate as possible. And by the way, if you're a premium subscriber, you may notice we have been pushing out a newsletter. <laughs> I'm going to follow the uh, the podcast on Mondays and Thursdays with a newsletter, just kind of a recap of things that have been trending on SpotTrack from a, a financial standpoint, some new pieces that we've launched in terms of podcasts or audio or video or or writing, just to kind of keep you up to date, get it in your inbox, things like that. Uh, you know, spread the word on that. We've got a, a decent following for that in terms of our premium subscription. It's not something we push too much, but we're happy to uh, continue to grow that base and grow the content for that base. Any kind of things you think we're missing that you'd love to see built into our premium subscription, hit us up through the email, through the inbox, at SpotTrack on Twitter. Always happy to, to respond to those kind of suggestions and recommendations. For Scott Allen, my name is Mike Gennetti. Thanks for listening to this edition of the SpotTrack Podcast. <laughs>